Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Sheila Hollis, who, in addition to being a, a veteran attorney in the energy space, uh, has been past chair of the United States Energy Association and now is ex- acting executive director. Hi, Sheila. Hello. How are you, Marty? Great. Um, we'd love to touch base with you on um, where USEA is today and uh, where it sees the main issues it's addressing uh, as of today. I, I know since you were created back a century ago, which was right after World War II, the world has changed a lot, as well as the domestic energy um situation. What would you say are some of your priorities going forward? And uh, maybe we could start off by just talking about what it means to be acting executive director. How long will you be in that role? What are your main missions? Well, I've been in the role nearly a year now, and uh, it's as a result of a a, a tragic event that is the sudden uh, passing of the former uh, executive director, uh, who had been the executive director for uh, about three decades. Uh, USEA was actually formed uh, back even even before the um, the era that you mentioned. It actually was formed in a, in a very uh, basic state back in 1924. So we're coming up on our centennial. But uh, it has been a tremendous honor uh, to be um, requested to step into this role. I was the uh, executive uh, chairman, chair of board of the board of directors of USEA, which has uh, representation from a variety of players, uh, most of major energy trade associations, but then also academic institutions, not-for-profits uh, who join us around the board uh, and um, help us uh, design a program which uh, basically is comprised of two major parts. One is to deliver information to provide a nonpartisan, non-lobbying, open forum for sharing ideas and dialogue on energy-related issues of the time, including uh, those environmental issues associated with energy. And secondly, uh, and uh, the dominant uh, activity of most of our staff relates to working throughout the world, uh, actually worked in 104 countries throughout the world, working with the State Department, the Energy Department, and particularly the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, and uh, right now we're working all throughout the world, albeit obviously mainly virtually now, but uh, until uh, the unfortunate circumstances which brought us to uh, having to work so much virtually, we have actually been in country uh, uh, throughout the world for uh well, since the fall of the wall, basically. And that includes Eastern Europe, uh, throughout Africa, South America, Central America, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and Asia in general. Uh, So we have uh, an extremely active, vibrant international arena that we play in and uh, that we uh, contribute uh, to the, basically, the benefit of the world to improve energy access, to make it safer, 
to help with training to the thing, to do the things that the country countries need and want. Uh, and so it's a very very uh, active, vibrant organization. Uh, and we have uh, we don't have a dull week <laughs> at USCA. Um, it's, it's a very wonderful operation. There's a lot to talk about, and I think it probably will would best serve us if we divide our conversation in half and the first half talk about the United States and the second part around about the world. Uh, we're at a pivot point, the energy sector in the United States is now, um, where climate change is moving front and center. How is that um, perceived by the USDA and, and the agendas and meetings it's setting? And uh, how are you addressing that? And how do you hope to contribute? Well, we certainly are doing a tremendous amount that takes that major, major issue of our time into into account. And uh, we do that through educational uh, activities, seminars, and the like. Uh, we do it in coordination with, for example, the Edison Electric Institute uh, and uh, academic institutions that participate also with the Department of Energy uh, and uh, USAID as those evolve through different administrations uh, over many years. Uh, so we are uh, pursuing our goals, which are to make the world a better place, uh, working in coordination with the vision of the U.S. government. And so that's a major, major part of what we do. With respect to our convening, we bring players from all of the energy interests uh, to convene in a number of uh, projects throughout the year, a uh, number of major uh, programs that we make available, and there's no charge, there's no, there's no uh, a problem other than just plugging into your computer and uh, going online and listening, which has been, really, we've been extremely active throughout uh, the pandemic. And um, uh, we've probably put on at least 100 different programs, uh, directly or indirectly, uh, sometimes with USAID, but then also our programs, our convening programs, where we have uh, the State of the Energy Industry Forum, for example, uh, very, very uh, open dialogue on the issues of the day, both environment and energy, and obviously they're, they're joined at the hip, so uh, it's a... It's a smooth conversation. You really are, a, um, in terms of the U.S. domestic energy, a United Nations of associations uh, among your 150-odd members, including folks like EPRI, which is with its research arm. You mentioned the EI and its policy arm and industry lobbying. You have the oil industry represented uh, on your board. And... How would you say the, the consensus among your board members and your leadership has shifted when it comes to the matter of climate change and how it should be addressed? Well, it has been there for a long time, but obviously it has become more and more a, uh, a topic of the day. Uh, and our members are working hard to, uh, to get their message out and to adapt to uh, the rules of the game. And uh, so that's, uh, there's a tremendous focus on environmental related issues in all of them, uh, whether it's say nuclear, whether it's uh, the petroleum or uh, Edison Electric Institute uh, and renewables, uh, wind power, uh, hydro, you name it. I mean, they are all focused on that as a central issue of our time. I know you and I have uh, shared, you and your staff have shared some key issues 
uh, before this conversation. One is the matter of grid resilience in the United States. Absolutely. You know about the problems that they had down in Texas back in February with the major wind with winter weather. Yes. What what do you see on the horizon in terms of challenges to grid re- resilience and uh, ways to address it? And I'm, I might point out you have a history of having worked at FERC. Do you see a role for FERC here in, in helping to advance grid resilience in a way it hasn't done uh, maybe t- to date? Oh, absolutely. And I know that the, the commissioners are very, very committed to that. Uh, because ultimately many of these issues land up in their lap one way or the other, but because they help create uh, and were the form for the creation of uh, a number of the grids, um, that it, it clearly uh, redounds to FERC's uh, jurisdiction. So we have done an enormous amount of work on the cybersecurity issue, which I must say is one of the uh, two key issues that keep me up, the, up at night. Uh, the other one being obviously the issues associated with CO2, climate change-related issues, but I have to say that cybersecurity and security in general of the grid, whether it's cyber or physical, but certainly more concerns now with cybersecurity, to me, are uh, are the key issues of the day, uh, and it's, uh, it, it, it is extremely worrisome. There are malfeasors. There are malfeasors. There are uh, gamesmen. Uh, there are, uh, unfortunately, uh, bad forces that are have uh, extreme capabilities to uh, try and attack and sabotage the U.S. United States in many ways, and uh, obviously uh, cybersecurity throughout uh, throughout the energy industry is uh, is one that our members are incredibly focused on. And what what about the role of um, natural gas in assisting the grid resilience? What role do you see it playing, especially as more and more renewables are tapped? Well, the renewables, uh, the issue that will have to be dealt with and is being dealt with and being developed right now are uh, issues associated with battery storage of the renewables and the ability to get the the renewables on the transmission system and make it work on the transmission system. So that's a whole set. That's a whole arena of issues, basically the storage uh, of renewable energy and how that will work. Natural gas continues to play a key role uh, and uh, because it is, uh, we have the infrastructure in place uh, throughout much uh, of the country, not every inch of the country, but much of the country. We have a major, major commitment to infrastructure. I'm saying as, as the country as a whole has a major commitment to energy infrastructure, certainly natural gas uh, pipelines and distribution systems are, are a key part of that. So as, you, as you're well aware, the Biden administration is making infrastructure a key priority in, in trying to get added resources directed in that, in that, um, to that topic. Um, and that early in the Obama administration, uh, major resources were, were directed to energy infrastructure. Is USCA and its membership uh, trying to guide the Biden administration to make sure those investments are made smart, uh, intelligently, and we don't have major political issues surface like surrounded the Solyndra solar loans by the federal government? Sure. Well, that's a, a, a nightmare that uh, that uh, hopefully will not be repeated. I think that the uh, certainly our members are in close contact with the administration. It's part of their existence. Uh, they're in close contact with the Secretary of Energy and the various, uh, various uh, assistant secretaries. Uh, certainly that is a, a key element of what they do. 
uh, because it's their life and because they have public service obligations uh, in all their members. They want to make sure that things are, are done properly and uh, thoughtfully uh, and carefully. Have Have you taken any special look at the rise of EVs in America and electrification of transportation and what that might mean to the energy sector? Oh, sure, sure. Well, uh, our, our members are, are prepared for it. And do you think it'll be transformative? Uh, not immediately, but over time, that certainly is going to be uh, a major element uh, in the transportation sector. Uh, and I think that certainly Edison Electric Institute is deeply involved in that. And I think that the uh, suppliers of uh, energy to the grid uh, and uh, to the uh, various systems throughout the country are very, very attuned to it. So, yeah, um, uh, my family has a has a um, has a uh, vehicle which can switch, switch between both worlds. So, <laughs> you bet. Let's uh, turn our attention now to, to international issues. As you know, the world is going to be heading to a major conference on climate change in Glasgow in November. Um, so, international cooperation on energy and, and environmental and climate issues are going to be front and center. Are you or your staff planning to be there, and what role might you play in those talks? As of this time, we are not, but um, we are not uh, in, uh, we're not obviously with government. We will be following it closely. Uh, our members um, may have representation there uh, on site, but we will not be uh, directly involved. Let's, let's talk about... Um, the underdeveloped part of the world that needs energy infrastructure. I think Africa comes to mind with more upwards of a half a billion people with no electricity at a time when we're worried about emissions. Yeah. What what does the USEA and its members see? Uh, what role might the U.S. energy sector and its technology uh, play in helping that problem? Well, we're right over there uh, right now, and uh, uh, some of our people may be headed back to Uganda. They've worked in country in Africa. That's been one of our major, major efforts is in is in Africa, uh, and a num- many of our um, of our staff have been uh, in Af- working in country for for many, many years, and they're eager to get it. frankly they're eager to get back. Uh, in the meantime, though, we've worked so carefully uh, with the. Uh, local govern, governing entities and the, the uh, players on uh, working through USAID uh, and uh, also with the Department of State and in some cases with the Department of Energy to help them develop uh, as well, as cleanly, as appropriately as possible and to improve whatever infrastructure they may have in place, which could, could, which could uh, in many cases stand some input and some uh, a helping hand. But we're not there to tell them what to do. We're there to help them um, implement what they want to do that is consistent with U.S. policy uh, at DOE, uh, at, at uh, State Department and USAID. So, example, in Uganda, uh, 70% of the people have no energy whatsoever. So we're working very carefully. It's mainly, it's almost 100% hydro uh, there. We've been working very, very closely with the Uganda Development or authorities to envision the future and establish transmission needs that are so required to provide power to more of Uganda than was presently served. That's just one uh, one example of the types of things that we're doing. And for years, we've done them in country. And um, 
people are eager to get back in country uh, and to, to keep keep the evolution going to improve their lives. Uh, energy, energy to me is a is a human right. It's a human right. It's 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 like water and air. It's a human right now to be part of the modern world, and in some cases, just to survive, you must have energy. And I've spent a lot of time in those various parts of the world, and I know full well what it's like when people when the energy is basically carried in, in the form of wooden sticks on women's heads. Women weigh 90 pounds, and they, a pile of sticks weighs 100 pounds on their head when they come out to gather wood so they can make a piece of, of bread at night. It's, it's brutal, and there's no getting around it, and much of the world lives that way, and it's not right. We're there to try and help them get out of that situation in cooperation with the U.S. government. So you, you mentioned Uganda. Um, your staff at the USCA speaks 14 languages. Yes. Get into the weeds with me a little bit on what some of those languages are and where it's taken you. Well, obviously, uh, French, we have Russian speakers, we have uh, Polish speakers, we've got Spanish speakers, we've got Portuguese speakers. Uh, they're a very, very, very sophisticated group. Uh, and uh, yes, they're wonderful, wonderful people, wonderful, devoted to the cause. Many of them have worked very extensively in government agencies before. Uh, many of them are in, uh, have worked in a consulting arena and been working in country and other contexts. Uh, and uh, some of them are from other parts of the world. And so they bring these incredible skill sets to the table. And um, uh, many of them are French speaking, obviously Spanish. So they go, you know, they are at home going around the world. And where we need translators, we get translators. Uh, and that helps too. Uh, to what extent do you see a parallel between what happened with telecommunications and possibly will happen with energy in that uh, once cellular technology started to take off, many parts of the underdeveloped parts of the world were able to bypass the wires stage of telecom and move directly to wireless. Do you see a way of possibly getting around massive investments in transmission in remote parts of the world that are underserved and new technologies coming to bear to a more decentralized system? Quite possibly. Um, much we, much that we've seen in the U.S. is it, we've seen some uh, decentralization. Um, we have uh, a lot of the developments that are built in a way where uh, solar uh, becomes uh, a means uh, to provide energy. Uh, and um, I think, yes, we see that evolving over time. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes and talk about the USDA. Uh, Barry Worthington was a legend in the industry. and uh, Absolutely. What do you feel uh, the association needs to do to step up to the next level, and how and when will you conduct a search for a successor, and what kind of person would you be looking for? Well, uh, you better have energy and be very, very interested in energy because it's an extremely um, busy universe that uh, you're in, both with respect to domestic and internationally. Just the amount of activity vis-a-vis -vis the um, Department of uh, State, uh, Department of Energy, and all of the varying projects throughout the world, plus the convening aspects of USEA and the ability to convene uh, have dialogue on the key issues of the day. So you need someone who knows energy uh, in and out 
and uh, they have to be uh, willing to uh, put heart and soul into it because this is not this is not a job for the faint of heart or for the only mildly interested. You have to be uh, uh, an energy geek uh, and uh, be able to move among a variety of energy sources uh, and a variety of uh, parts of the world and feel comfortable in in those roles. Um, also, uh, speaking ability, I think, is uh, is a key part of it uh, to get the message out there and uh, a real dedication to the betterment of the world. Uh, or, uh, this is not that would not be the right job for anybody that didn't feel it uh, passionately, heart and soul, as well as have the intellectual capability to to jump in and run with it. One uh, side issue I'd like to raise with you because I know it's on your mind and the mind of your staff, and and that's. Uh, reliance on China for some important minerals and uh, resources, natural resources for the energy sector. As relations with China heat up, how do you think we need to address that? Well, um, we have uh, some of our own resources, of course, and there are some Canadian resources, and certainly uh, those are uh, ones that we will call upon. But uh, hopefully there will be uh, an opportunity um, in the future to uh, find a way to uh, have more normalized relationships on that topic. Uh, certainly, I think it is a, a, a great concern because uh, they are uh, happen to be resource rich in that area. Uh, plus, they have uh, developed uh, opportunities in other parts of the world as well, which might give access to some of those uh, rare earth, rare minerals. But uh, it's my understanding just today, it may have been in the FT, but uh, my understanding is that there's been a uh, a uh, hiatus as of the last 72 hours or so with respect to uh, the continuing uh, mining of those of those issues. So that may be a good sign, it may be a bad sign, it may be no sign at all. But uh, anyway, uh, that was just something I think it was, may have been in the FT or the Journal of the Times today. The last question I'd like to ask you, Sheila, and it's been a great conversation uh, is you've been involved at a high level at energy law in, in D.C. for uh, 24 years, upwards of 24 years. How have you seen the sector change, and, and what are the key issues change, and, and what are, are some of the positive developments that you see, and what are some of the negative developments that you see? Sure. Well, um, when I started out, uh, it was uh, in a shortage context, so my my um, mind has always been framed around uh, the, the concerns about shortage, uh, time tremendous natural gas shortage, uh, the uh, petroleum uh, petroleum well it was uh, OPEC phase uh, of uh, our American history, and seeing that, seeing uh, presidents rising full on that issue, uh, and trying to deal with the complexities of that. And what it is to see shortage, uh, that's always in the back of my mind, uh, that there's a, uh, that concern. Uh, at the time, natural gas was in incredibly short supply. And um, uh, our LNG shipments were uh, still coming in, but it was a very, very complicated situation. But it led to the development of the uh, Energy Policy Act, uh, of the creation of a DOE as opposed to separate entities, um, and so uh, creativity uh, took hold, uh, opportunities took hold, and a whole new world of independent power development took, took hold. Natural gas, which had been regulated price-wise at the, at the wellhead, became deregulated and the competitive market opened up. 
But the huge amount of infrastructure that was development, development of independent power came uh, in the Energy Act of 77 was just remarkable. And so out of that uh, strained and difficult time created a whole new world of laws and regulations and opportunities for lawyers and thinkers and consultants and players all over all over the country and throughout uh, throughout the world. So I'm extremely optimistic that uh, the U.S., its capabilities, its uh, intellectual firepower, and its commitment basically to do good domestically and throughout the world. Basically, when all is said and done, that this too will be a period of evolution and uh, solutions to a lot of really difficult problems. We're always going to need energy, uh, and it's just to make it better, cleaner, uh, and accessible uh, to the people who really need it. Uh, there are a lot of people who uh, live in energy poverty, and uh, we want to help them domestically and throughout um, the world. One question I'd be derelict if I didn't ask is um, you talk about the importance of shortage early in your career in the energy sector. You also were past president of the Women's Council on Energy and the Environment, and there have been a shortage of women professionals, and that's certainly changing. And what do you see the outcome of that being? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's it's really expanding or also... Not just diversity in uh, in gender, but to diversity in general. It's really evolving quickly, and it's it's really exciting to see. It's long overdue, uh, and I see a very bright future in the energy business for women, uh, for minorities, uh, for thinkers who care about energy, who want to do things right and make the world a better place. It's basically uh, the sky's the limit. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have this lovely interview. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grid Talk. Thanks to our guest, Sheila Hollis, who's acting executive director of the United States Energy Association. Please send us your feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.